You are listening to American Songcatcher, tracing the roots of American music from its cultured past to today's artists playing it forward. I'm folk musician Nicholas Edward Williams. In January of 1660, London, England, a man named Samuel Pepys started meticulously documenting his life as a diary. For nearly 10 years, he recorded more than a million words about his personal finances, when he woke up, the weather, what he ate, his mistresses, politics, the theater, friends and family, essentially the lifestyle of an upper middle class man in 17th century London. He was vulnerable though, revealing his jealousy, insecurities, complications of his marriage, and vividly captured national tragedies like the Great Plague, the Second Anglo-Dutch War, and the Great London Fire and Restoration. Because of his frankness and grave detail, Samuel's entries are now widely regarded as the greatest diaries of all time, and certainly the most celebrated in Britain, dubbed a national treasure. They've been a reliable resource for generations of historians, aiming to get a better understanding of life in London in the 17th century. While he was working as a clerk with the Navy in 1666, Samuel had an entry about a New Year's party that he recalled with fondness, and his diary states, But above all, my dear Mrs. Knepp, whom I sang, and in perfect pleasure I was to hear her sing, and especially her little Scotch song of Barbary Allen. This is the earliest documented reference to a song that ethnomusicologists have said is far and away the most widely collected in the English language, equally popular in England, Scotland, and Ireland, and with hundreds of versions collected over the years in North America. It's been called by many names, Barbary Allen, Barbarous Allen, and Bonnie Barbara Allen, to name a few, though it's known today in America as Barbara Allen. In the merry month of May, when the green birds This traditional Scottish ballad spread like wildfire, both orally and in print throughout the British Isles in a relatively short time span. Musicologists speculate that because of its popularity, it may have been written for stage performance, especially since Samuel's mistress, Mrs. Knepp, was a professional actress, singer, and dancer. The story of the song tells of a young man named William, who, while on his deathbed, calls out Barbara's name and sends a servant to ask if she would tend to him. She takes her time, and when arriving at his bedside, She coldly says, young man, I think you're dying. William then pleads for her love, but Barbara refuses because he had given a toast to a group of women at a local tavern with his friends, and in turn slighted her. William died shortly after, and on her way home, she hears the mournful strokes of a death bell for him, and immediately regrets her judgment, and an overwhelming grief causes her to die shortly thereafter. It didn't take long for variations of the lyrics to soften the tone and state that they were buried side by side at the same church, that a rose grew from his grave, a briar from hers, and that they grew to form a true lover's knot. The second documentation of the song came in 1690, 
by way of a broadside sheet published in London under the title Barbara Allen's Cruelty or The Young Man's Tragedy. After that, printings of Barbara Allen could be commonly found throughout the 18th century in Britain, Scotland, and even into Western Europe. The Scottish poet Alan Ramsey published it as Bonnie Barbara Allen in his collection of songs called The Tea Table Miscellany in 1740. It was also listed in English poetry and songbooks, and even the renowned Austrian composer Joseph Hayden was commissioned to arrange a version of the song in 1792. The acclaim of these printed broadsides and other publications were a massive influence on both traditional and popular singers, so much so that it has long been considered as the most tragically sung ballad from the British Isles, which has harbored thousands and thousands of songs. The song was carried to the New World by European settlers and immigrants in the 18th and 19th century, and it's rumored to have been first published in America in an undocumented 1836 songbook. Many versions of the song continued to be printed on broadsides in the United States through the 19th and 20th centuries, variations that can be traced directly back to the British Isles a few hundred years earlier. It follows the folk song tradition of having many different titles, yet not so much in lyrical changes, as they have all remained remarkably similar which is unique. The woman's name is always Barbara or Barbary, and Alan or Ellen, and the young man has only a few names, Sweet William or Sir John Graham. The main story, too, is always the same. William is dying and desperately asking for the love of Barbara Allen. He sends his servant to find her. She comes and gives him the cold shoulder, which is all a testament to the song's incredible longevity. He sent his servant to the town to the place where she was dwelling, saying, you must come to my master, dear, if your name be Barbara Allen. Barbara Allen isn't just a well-traveled ballad. It's been an inspiration and a bottomless well to pull from. In the mid-18th century, its melody was used to sing traditional texts, and during the Civil War, its melody was copied to create a popular song called Brother Green. In the early 19th century, it was used both as a children's game and was converted to an instrumental piece for dances. Even Abraham Lincoln sang Barbara Allen in rural Indiana as a child. However, by the end of the 19th century, the ballad tradition was nearly a forgotten pastime in the British Isles, where it all started. That all changed when the famous English folk song collector Cecil Sharp began his search throughout Appalachia for songs that could be traced back to his home. He discovered a treasure trove of ballads that England was close to losing and collected enough versions of Barbara Allen to fill 16 pages of his publication, English Folk Songs of the Southern Appalachians. In Scarlet Town, where I was born. From New England to Appalachia, the song slowly moved westward in the 19th century, and as Alan Lomax put it, this ballad, if no other, traveled west with every wagon. They sang Barbara Allen in Texas before the pale faces were thick enough to make the Indians consider a massacre worthwhile. It was collected several times by the famed ethnomusicologist Francis James Child, and Charles Seeger worked on a Library of Congress collection entitled Versions and Variants of Barbara Allen from the Archive of Folk Song, finding 30 renditions of the ballad that were recorded from 1933 to 1954 in America. Like many songs that are still around from the British Isles, 
It's crossed over from traditional folk ballad into country blues, old time, bluegrass, and even popular music. Saying, Master dear, has sent me here. If your name be Marielle. Today in America, Barbara Allen remains our best known ballad. And in recent years, it has been recorded more than 300 times in the U.S. and over 500 times worldwide. It's been covered by Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, Cisco Houston, the Everly Brothers, Dolly Parton, Simon and Garfunkel, Burl Ives, the new Lost City Ramblers, and Pete Seeger, just to name a few. Here's my rendition of Barbara Allen, inspired by Burl Ives' version, first recorded in the U.S. in 1910. Serving to the town To the place where she was dwelling Saying you must come to my master dear If your name be Barbara Allen So slowly, slowly she got up And slowly came inside him All she said when she got there Young man, I think you're dying so he turned his face unto the wall And death was coming for him Goodbye, goodbye to my friends and all Be good to Barbara Just before Jim Crow laws were set in motion, either in Mooringsport, Louisiana in January of 1888, or Freeport, Louisiana in January of 1889, 
Hughie William Ledbetter, known throughout his life as Leadbelly, was born. He grew up in the cotton fields, where his father was a sharecropper who owned his own land, and later said that, When I was a little baby, my mother used to tell me about how she used to take me to the field and rock me in the cradle. When I got to be a boy, I got to picking cotton in Louisiana, and I was picking 250 pounds of cotton a day. As a small child, Leadbelly wasn't just unusually strong. He was also showing signs of being a musical prodigy. He made his own fife, a small flute-like instrument, and taught himself how to play it. His mother, who led the church choir, said he would sit in his little rocking chair. His feet could not touch the ground, but he could play tunes on the accordion and mandolin. John Hardy, he was a desperate little man. He carried to God every day. Like many folks in rural America, Leadbelly had a large extended family of cousins and uncles who lived nearby. Two of his uncles were songsters with very different repertoires, one of which taught him guitar. He learned work songs, field hollers, regional traditionals and spirituals, as well as some blues from musicians who were passing through the area. Needless to say, from an early age, he had the ability to quickly learn any instrument he could get his hands on, and taught himself piano, harmonica, fiddle, wind jammer, string bass, and melodeon, a kind of button accordion. He also had some musical instruction at the Lake Chapel School and got his start as a teenager, occasionally playing the organ at church services and secular music at the local dances. In eighth grade, Leadbelly quit school and began performing in juke joints, brothels, saloons, and dance halls around the red light district of Shreveport an area then known as St. Paul's Bottoms. He drifted around Louisiana. He saw Jelly Roll Morton perform in New Orleans and added songs about the railroad, show tunes, folk songs, and popular songs to his repertoire. He started rearranging old songs, something he later would become known for, such as his version of Frankie and Johnny, which he changed to Frankie and Albert. Around 1910, he laid roots in Dallas. Now in his 20s, he got married and was singing on street corners and parties as a duo with Blind Lemon Jefferson, who later became the most commercially successful bluesman of this time. To combat the noise, he developed a booming voice, accompanied by an equally thundering 12-string guitar. He would soon become known as the king of that instrument, honing in on a style heavily influenced by his ragtime and barrel house boogie-woogie piano playing. When he wasn't earning money from music, Leadbelly would farm, work oil industry jobs, drive a truck, tend the pump at gas stations, and work on cars. Back on his 16th birthday, Leadbelly's father gifted him a pistol, as it was common for all classes of people to carry guns for self-defense in the South, as it still is today. Being a musician meant sometimes playing gigs where there was plenty of drinking in dangerous neighborhoods, and if it came down to it, it was kill or be killed. The circumstances that led to his first arrest are unclear. But at 27, he was charged with carrying a pistol. His punishment was to do time on a chain gang, which he disliked so much that he fled to a different county and lived under the name Walter Boyd for the next several years. By his own admission, Leadbelly was a compelling performer. Once sang, when I play, the women would come around to listen and their men would get angry. His relatives said that since he was very young, he had a quick and bad temper. Add in the chaos of barrel houses and brothels that were already rough places to make a living, and you have a heated concoction. Fights were common, and Leadbelly didn't shy away from them. In 1917, when he was 33, 
He was arrested for the second time after shooting a man to death during a scuffle, though he claimed self-defense as the other man pointed his gun first. His legal defense was so expensive that his parents lost their farm supporting him, and despite the shaky evidence, he was already considered a criminal on the run and was convicted and sentenced for 7 to 20 years at Shaw State Prison in Huntsville, Texas. It's thought that his nickname Leadbelly, which indicates toughness, was demonstrably acquired while in prison there, though other sources say that he took up the name in Dallas. He tried multiple times to escape from Shaw State, and after a year was transferred to Sugarland, Texas prison, where for the next six years he was a model inmate, making a very clear effort to shorten his sentence. Word about his musicality spread, and soon he was asked to entertain both the prisoners and the guards. When the governor of Texas, Pat Neff, visited the penitentiary, Leadbelly chose a song that compared his imprisonment to a biblical story about freedom and forgiveness. The governor returned several times to hear him perform, even bringing guests along, then granted Leadbelly a pardon a year later in 1925, just a few months before his seven-year minimum was up. I look at Ron and Guinness, thank you, Governor Pat Neff. I wanted to have a little much on him because I had 35 years. After he was released, Leadbelly lived between Shreveport and Houston for the next five years. He found blues records making waves in the mainstream by Bessie Smith, Big Bill Brunzi, and his old friend Blind Lemon Jefferson. He added some of their songs to his catalog, adjusting them and making them his own, though he hadn't made any commercial recordings himself. Folklorist Fred Ramsey described watching Lead Billy learn Nobody Knows You When You're Down and Out from a Bessie Smith album. Right after hearing the record, he'd sing it through, but two weeks later, Lead Billy came back and proceeded to run through it in a style completely his own. Nobody knows you when you're down and out. In 1930, Leadbelly was enjoying himself, doing a soft shoe dance, watching a group of Salvation Army musicians, when a group of white men bumped into him. Knives were drawn, and he took out a penknife that he used to play slide guitar and cut one of them on the arm. He was arrested once again, convicted of assault with intent to murder, and sentenced from five to ten years at Angola Prison, where inmates did hard labor across an 18,000-acre complex of old plantations. In 1933, musicologist John Lomax, Alan Lomax's father, was on a search to collect traditional music performed by marginalized people in remote places. He was working under an agreement with the Library of Congress's Archive of Folk Song, who was interested in using his expertise to expand their catalog using modern recording equipment. Lomax was hoping to document a musical culture that was untouched, in his words, by the modern world. He set out to find the Negro who had the least contact with jazz, the radio, and with the white man, as he put it. He believed that the Southern Penitentiary system, especially because of its prison farms, was the place to find these songs. It was a distinctive environment where old work songs were still sung in the field, a sound that you could hear from a mile away that could almost take you off your feet. That's how he first, quote unquote, discovered Lead Belly at Angola Prison. Lomax recorded him entertaining the men, just as he had done at Sugarland, singing, Take a Whiff Off Me, Angola Blues, and Irene, among others. However, the recording equipment malfunctioned, so there's no record of it. Nevertheless, Lomax was ecstatic. He wrote that, We found a Negro convict so skillful with his guitar and his strong baritone voice, unique in knowing a very large number of songs. Sunday morning, Lord, 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 the preacher went a-hunting, Lord, Lord, Lord. 
The way Lead Belly told it, when both Alan and John Lomax came back a year later, he had them take a recording of him pleading on one side and Irene on the other, then sent it to the Louisiana governor's office. Another version was that the Lomaxes wrote a letter to the prison warden making the case for Leadbelly's release, while others suspect that the budget issues caused by the Great Depression allowed him to apply for early release. Either way, the governor approved his application in 1934 under the condition that if he got into trouble again in Louisiana, the remaining time of his current sentence would be added to the charge. When you put a man in prison behind the bars in jailhouse, if you had 15 or 25 or 30 dollars, you can save him from the gallows for cause. He's going to hang him if he don't bring up a little money. When released from Angola, Ledbilly found himself in the middle of the Great Depression, and jobs he could normally get at the oil refineries and the like were in short supply. He wrote to John Lomax and asked to be a valet, cook, and a driver for his song-collecting trips. At 67 years old, Lomax needed the help, and the added bonus was that Leadbelly could likely get more inmates to sing unencumbered. So he obliged, and for the next six months, the two traveled to prisons around the South. The first few months, he was strictly driving and helping with recording equipment. Then, over the next several months, he would participate in Lomax's lectures on folk music and perform the kinds of songs that they were looking for to inmates. Leadbelly had the added bonus of both being launched into the spotlight from the lectures and getting first dibs rearranging the songs that they were hearing for the first time in prisons, such as Rock Island Mine, which came from the Rock Island Colored Booster Quartet, a group of railroad employees. The two got to know each other, camping on the side of the road to save money, as was Lomax's custom on these tours. On the Rock Island Line, it's a mighty good road. On the Rock Island Line, it's a road to ride. The partnership was mutually beneficial, so Lomax handed him a five-year management contract in early 1935. The first order of business was his first public concert, held at the Montclair Hotel in New York City on January 4, 1935, organized by Lomax. He introduced the singer this way, I've heard his songs a hundred times, but I always get a thrill. To me, his music is real music. Leadbelly spent his evenings in Harlem on this trip, and at one point he met Cab Calloway, who said that he offered him a job. It was the jazz age, and he was mesmerized. Lomax set up an interview for a book contract, but Leadbelly had been out drinking all night in Harlem and showed up late, still intoxicated, boasting that, if I wasn't so drunk, I could make a million dollars today. Lomax had a Tribune reporter on his heels asking questions, and with the slip of the tongue said, Leadbelly is a natural, with no idea of money, law, or ethics, and who is possessed of virtually no self-restraint. The myths surrounding his life continued to grow, and the media had a feeding frenzy. In Philadelphia, Leadbelly gave his first interview to the press, under the headline, Two-Time Dixie Murderer Sings His Way to Freedom. In New York, a Herald Tribune headline read, Sweet singer of the swamplands, here to do a few tunes between homicides. The Brooklyn Eagle called him a virtuoso of knife and guitar. The Lomaxes were appalled by these quick characterizations of him, the idea that they were exploiting his circumstances and by the garnish of racism. Still, the sensationalism brought plenty of new opportunities to perform and record, and Leadbelly used the shots against him. For a time, he even used the phrase sweet singer of the swamp as his signature on letters and stationery. Leadbelly was catapulted into the public eye from both the media and his participation in Lomax's lectures at conferences, Ivy League schools, and the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. The audiences of white professors, authors, politicians, and the like were shocked by this recently imprisoned African-American performing for them 
and Leadbelly was adept at winning them over. Lomax helped arrange his first record contract at the American Record Corporation under their race catalog, though they primarily wanted to market him as a country blues performer to attract African-American buyers. He obliged their requests and laid down 40 sides, and despite his growing publicity, the records didn't sell, and in fact many weren't released and they wrote it off as a loss, including a take of Irene. He was still paid $250, nearly $5,000 in today's money, agreeing not to receive any future royalties. You can't lose me, challenge. You can't lose me, boy. Though his music was reaching a larger audience, it was a complicated relationship with Lomax. In letters, Leadbelly described him as paternalistic and that he'd been reduced to a symbol of oppression. Additionally, Lomax's insistence on handling all the money, including tips Leadbelly got by passing his hat, and even post-dating checks so that he wouldn't spend it all right away, was infuriating. Things started to boil over, then Leadbelly got representation and sued, which Lomax paid out entirely on September 12, 1935. Ironically, at the time, Leadbelly was working at a gas station once again back in Shreveport for 10 cents a day and still writing to Lomax, hoping that they could have a performing partnership again and that he had no hard feelings towards him. New York City is on the New York City. After the settlement, Leadbelly went back to New York to start fresh on his own, and soon got booked to perform with a review at the famed Apollo Theater in Harlem. Twice a day he took the stage, wearing prison stripes, to play on the previous year's news story about him singing himself out of jail. An autobiography on his life and diverse repertoire called Negro Folk Songs as Sung by Leadbelly was published in 1936. The book was the first in-depth autobiographical account of a folk singer, told in their eyes, explaining their songs. There was enough publicity to give Leadbelly's career a small boost while he was trying to make it in New York City, though like the records, it was a commercial failure. Today, however, some rare first edition copies of that book cost well over a thousand dollars. In 1937, Leadbelly was featured in Life magazine with a three-page article titled Bad N-Word Makes Good Minstrel, Only They Said the Actual Word. In full color, he was sitting on grain sacks, playing and singing barefoot, in overalls and a red handkerchief. There was also a close-up of his hands on the guitar with a side caption, These Hands Once Killed a Man. A historian on Leadbelly and other folk heroes named Robert Centelli said, He realized the value of that image and often would play to it, but underneath that, he disliked it. He much preferred to be photographed and to play in a suit. On March 5, 1939, an incident occurred, and he was arrested once again, this time for felonious assault. There's speculation that a man had intruded on Leadbelly's wife, Martha, and he was stabbed multiple times. Alan Lomax bailed him out, dropped out of grad school at Columbia University to raise money for legal expenses, just to make sure that Martha was able to get by while he was imprisoned. Wildly, though, Leadbelly's sentence was cut down to just eight months, because while he was out on bail, he tackled and held a man down who was attempting to rob a liquor store until the police got there. When you see me coming, put your man out of After his time was served, Leadbelly and Martha were relying almost entirely on her house cleaning gigs and the money raised by Alan Lomax. He and a few others helped Leadbelly get gigs performing for progressive leftist groups, where he was free to sing topical songs that the mainstream would call taboo. He got on the popular folk radio shows along with his friends Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, Burl Ives, and others, 
and soon had his own 15-minute weekly radio show with New York City's WNYC studios. Someone from WNYC said, Woody Guthrie was constantly saying, we are learning everything from him. Leadbelly's apartment became a welcoming haven for folkies, black and white, where songs were plentiful. He soon recorded the first album of folk music onto 12-inch discs, as well as the first to have full introductions of the songs in 1939, called Negro Sinful Songs, sung by Leadbelly. That album was honored in the Grammy Hall of Fame 60 years later. He also recorded the Midnight Special and other Southern Prison songs, the title of which he was associated with the rest of his life, along with Goodnight Irene, even though he didn't write those songs. Moses Ash, who recorded him from 1941 until the end of his life, said that Leadbelly treated himself as a noble person, and when he recorded, knowing that this was for people to understand what he stood for, he recorded exactly the same way. Ash was the founder of Ash Records, which later became Folkways Records. He, like Lomax, played a vital role in American music, and Leadbelly was the first of many legends that he recorded. Pete Seeger said that he could just be walking in New York City, think of a song, run up to the Folkways studio, take out his banjo, record it, and ten minutes later, be back on the street walking again. Ash had an open door and an open-minded policy. Anytime any artist, regardless of race or class, wanted to come in, they could record whatever they wanted, which was all highly unusual for the times. Moses Ash also developed a library from these recordings, over 2,000 albums, and he never allowed them to go out of print. Now a part of the Smithsonian Folkways collection, it was through Ash's recordings that generations of artists and listeners, especially during the 60s revival, became aware of Leadbelly's work, along with countless other musicians. By the mid-1940s, Leadbelly was finally being decently paid for performances on the school and university circuit. He became a key figure on the growing folk music scene, performing alongside Woody Guthrie, Cisco Houston, Brownie McGee, Pete Seeger, and others. When John Lomax died in 1948, Leadbelly made the trip from New York to the University of Texas at Austin, despite being in poor health, to play a tribute concert celebrating Lomax's life and work. Though their relationship was tumultuous, both men's legacies were dependent on their brief partnership, and they clearly still had a deep, lasting respect for each other. In 1949, he embarked on his first European tour, though after a concert in Paris, he fell ill and returned home early, then soon was diagnosed with ALS. Hudie William Ledbetter passed away soon after, on December 6, 1949, at age 61. Ironically, less than a year after he died, Leadbelly's arrangement of Goodnight Irene, originally called Irene, would become a hit for the Weavers, peaking at number one for 13 weeks and becoming the song of the year for 1950. His music was integral, not just to the folk revival of the 1960s, but also standards in rock, blues, and beyond. The Animals had a hit with his version of House of the Rising Sun, same with Led Zeppelin, with his arrangement of Gallows Pole. Black Betty was a hit for Ram Jam in 1977, CCR got their hit version of the Midnight Special from him, 
and Nirvana covered Where Did You Sleep Last Night on the Grammy-winning record MTV Unplugged in New York that has been responsible for so many Lead Belly discoveries after its release in 1993. Judy, before you begin, give us your idea about where the blues really came from. Not anything that anybody's told you, but what you believe yourself or what you heard. Well, uh, what I believe myself and what I just mostly, since I've been going around and from a little boy on up to a man, getting old now, and I've been through places and looked into many faces, and the blues long years ago before colored people was free. Never was a white man had the blues in them times. This old Jim Crowisms did bad luck to me and you. Leadbelly wrote or rearranged over 500 songs and once said, I just take them and fix them. Not unlike what A.P. Carter did for the Carter family. He was keen to raise social issues, which was rare for an African American in those days. He also wrote about Hitler, the New Deal, and about the Jim Crow blues in the frankest of terms. Bourgeoisie blues was about an evening he spent with John Lomax and their wives after recording with the Library of Congress, where each restaurant they tried to dine at wouldn't let them in because they were an interracial group. Occasionally, Leadbelly would end concerts by inviting entirely white audiences to sing a song with him called We in the Same Boat, Brother. We in the same boat, brother. Robert Sintelli said, perhaps more than any other folk artist, his ability to cross genres and musical paths was unparalleled. It's hard to overestimate the effect that Leadbelly has had on the music of the 20th century. George Harrison said, if there was no Leadbelly, there would be no Lonnie Donegan. No Lonnie Donegan, no Beatles. In his 2016 Nobel Prize lecture, Bob Dylan said that when he got his first Leadbelly record, it changed my life right then and there. It was like an explosion went off. Like I'd been walking in the darkness, and all of a sudden, darkness was just illuminated. Good morning, blue. You do. In celebration of Leadbelly's 125th birthday in 2015, the Kennedy Center held a concert titled Leadbelly at 125, a tribute to an American songster. The roster included Robert Plant, Alison Krauss, Lucinda Williams, Dom Flemons, Alvin Youngblood Hart, Valerie June, and many others. That same year, Smithsonian Folkways collaborated with the Grammy Museum to release a five-disc box set of his work, and the state of Louisiana made his gravesite a historical landmark. He's been inducted into the Songwriter, Blues Foundation, Rock and Roll, and Grammy Hall of Fame, and has received the American Folklife Center Lifetime Achievement Award. Here's a take on Goodnight Irene, a song whose author is unknown and was sung in minstrel shows throughout the 1800s, inspired entirely by Lead Belly who learned it from his uncle and recorded it in 
Good night, Irene. Good night, Irene. I'll see you in my dreams. Sometimes I live in the country. Sometimes I live in town. Sometimes I take a great notion to jump in the river and drown. I mean good night. I mean good night. Good night, I mean good night. I mean I'll see you in my dreams. Stop rambling, stop your gambling Stop staying out late at night Go home to your wife and your family And stay by the fireside and bright I mean good night I mean good night Good night I mean Good night I mean I'll see in my dreams I mean good night I mean good night Good night I mean Good night I mean I'll see you in my dreams Ten thousand miles if I go In the boroughs of New York City on January 9, 1941, Joan Shandos Baez was born one of three girls in Staten Island to a fittingly diverse family. Her father, Albert, was born in Puebla, Mexico, and her mother, also Joan Shandos Baez, affectionately known as Joan Sr. or Big Joan, was born in Edinburgh, Scotland. Joan's father earned a Ph.D. from Stanford University in mathematics and physics and was later credited for the invention of the X-ray microscope. He was an outspoken man who had once lobbied in a letter to President Roosevelt during the Great Depression to have a Spanish-speaking church created in Brooklyn, where he lived among several hard-hit Puerto Ricans. There was a wealthy merchant in London, he did well. Shortly after Joan was born, her family switched from Catholicism to Quakerism, who value all people equally and believe that a part of God is in everyone. Because of the Mexican heritage on her father's side, throughout grade school she was constantly subjected to discrimination and racial slurs. Though this, along with Quakerism, inspired her to gravitate towards advocating for social justice from a very early age. Oh, oh freedom. Oh. Joan's parents kept an intellectual environment during her and her sister's childhood and favored listening to classical music. Though her voice has operatic qualities, she had very little formal music training and even rejected piano lessons. Instead, she clung to a ukulele that a friend of her father gave her and learned the famous four chords of popular music with it. It didn't take long for her to get a Sears Roebuck guitar, and she began to accompany her soprano voice during lunches at school, where she got a lot of attention. I was born gifted, she said in the opening line of her memoir, and a voice to sing with. She taught herself to flutter her vocal cords while in the shower by quickly moving her index finger up and down her throat. On her nightstand, 
She had a radio that was on, as long as her mother wasn't around, playing rhythm and blues and practicing the four chords that she knew to them. Her parents were terrified of the idea of her playing this music, associating it with artists who were dope addicts, even though, according to Joan, they didn't know what dope addicts were or looked like. Following research in different teaching positions, Joan's father moved the family to numerous cities and countries, including England, Switzerland, France, Spain, Canada, and the Middle East. When she was 10, they lived in Iraq for a year and were exposed to the harsh conditions that the Iraqi people dealt with. Through these relocations across the world, she heard traditional music from the British Isles, folk music of the Middle East, Yiddish folk songs, French protest songs, spirituals, and old songs from the South. But everything changed when Joan's aunt took her to see a Pete Seeger concert when she was 13. Joan said, I discovered that this man did what my family, in a sense, had done for many years, which was, having become Quakers when I was eight years old, fused everything with their politics. And this was music and politics in a way that I had never known. But it was so natural to me, his music and what he did with his life, and I understood that very quickly. After that, Joan started practicing songs from Pete's catalog and infusing more advocacy in her day-to-day. And both shall cross my true love and I. The family eventually settled in the San Francisco area of Palo Alto while Joan was in high school. There, she excelled in music more than other studies, and one of her first known musical appearances was at a retreat in Saratoga, California, for a youth group. After graduating high school in 1958, the family moved to Boston, where her father accepted a position at MIT. It was here that Joan's interest in actually performing folk music got a spark after visiting a coffee shop where amateur folk singers were performing. She enrolled at Boston University and made friends with semi-professional folk singers, learning the tricks of the trade, though she only stayed in school for six weeks. She started picking up the songs that were recirculating and becoming popularized again, such as ballads from the British Isles, simple folk songs, blues, spirituals, and songs from other countries that she traveled to and lived in during her childhood. If you miss the train I'm on, you will know that I am gone. In 1958, Joan gave her first public concert at the renowned folk venue Club 47 in Cambridge, Massachusetts, for a mere eight people, including her family. When she designed the poster for the event, Joan considered changing her name. One option was Rachel Sandpearl, the surname of her mentor, activist Ira Sandpearl, whom she met while protesting about paying war taxes at a Quaker meeting when she was a senior in high school. Another option was Maria, from the song They Call the Wind Maria, though she decided that people would think it was just to fit her Spanish last name and kept what she was given. The club paid her $10, and Joan got to work fine-tuning her stage presence, vocal and guitar technique, and added a variety of songs until Club 47 welcomed her back and she started getting paid $25 per show twice a week. She started getting other gigs around Boston coffee houses and quickly became a favorite of Harvard University students. She was also noticed by other folk singers, including Jamaican-American activist Harry Belafonte, who later became famous for introducing clips of music to mainstream America with the Banana Boat song. He was also a successful Emmy-winning actor and offered Joan a job singing in his backing group. We are crossing at Jordan River. I want my crown. That summer, Joan met and shared a bill with a well-known folk singer named Bob Gibson at a club in Chicago. Gibson was so impressed that he invited Joan to sit in with him at the first annual Newport Folk Festival 
where they sang two spirituals as a duet. Virgin Mary had one son, and we are crossing the Jordan River. Joan was the talk of the festival, dubbed the Barefoot Madonna with a rose in her long hair, noted by her earthly appearance and otherworldly voice. Years later, Gibson was praised for introducing Joan Baez to America, yet he insisted otherwise, stating, It was like discovering the Grand Canyon. I may have introduced her to her first large audience, but do you think that girl was going to stay unknown? The performance launched her career and led to friendships with the likes of the very man who began her love of folk music, Pete Seeger. Soon, she had record labels at her feet, though Joan opted to stay in Boston with the growing local coffee shop scene. Al preso numero nueve, ya lo van a a year later, after a second triumphant performance at the Newport Folk Festival, Joan signed with Vanguard Records, even though labels like Columbia Records were chomping at the bit. She picked Vanguard because it gave her more creative control and artistic license, and it paid off, as her first album, self-titled, was a massive hit that both went gold and was inducted into the National Recording Registry of the Library of Congress for preservation 45 years later. It was produced by Fred Hellerman of The Weavers, who worked on several folk records, and she started a 14-album, 12-year association with Vanguard. The entire record, and most of Joan's early work, was strictly traditional songs, a mix of ballads, blues, lullabies, cowboy tunes, arrangements by the Carter family, the Weavers, and Woody Guthrie songs, and even the Mexican folk song, El Preso Numero Nueve, sung entirely in Spanish, all of which garnered a strong following around America and abroad. I will twine with my mingles of raven black hair, with the roses so red and the lilies so fair. In her first few years of touring, she made it a policy not to play in any segregated venues. So when she performed in southern states, Joan would only play at black colleges and universities. In 1961, her first major concert after the debut record came in New York to a sold-out crowd at the famous venue Town Hall. The folk critic at the New York Times wrote, that superb soprano voice, as lustrous and rich as old gold, flowed purely all evening with wondrous ease, her singing unwound like a spool of satin. The two albums that followed, titled Joan Baez Volume 2 and Joan Baez in Concert, both additionally went gold. That same year, Joan saw a 19-year-old unknown Bob Dylan at the famous Gertie's Folk Club in New York City for the first time, and wasn't terribly impressed. By 1963, however, she saw him at Club 47 in Boston and was blown away, and the two were formally introduced. They were fond of each other's music, so Joan invited him to the Newport Folk Festival that year to get him more exposure, and on one of her fall tours where they frequently shared the stage for duets. Bob said of her voice, just the sound of it could put you into a spell. She was an enchantress. Joan wrote a handful of songs dedicated to him, including To Bobby, written in 1972 as a request for him to return to political activism. They had a brief romantic relationship that lasted on and off for two years, and they were considered the king and queen of folk music, though Bob didn't take to the title very well. During his now-famous tour of England in 1965 that produced the cult documentary Don't Look Back, Joan came along and was visibly treated as excess baggage, even denied opportunities to join him on stage. Bob later apologized in public in 2009 for the way that he acted towards her. Joan still holds mostly fond memories of him and has a prominent painting of him in the California home that she's lived in for over 40 years. We shall overcome. We 
By the mid-1960s, Joan was among the leaders of the American Roots revival, even gracing the cover of Time magazine, which was virtually unheard of for musicians at the time. In 1963, Joan marched and performed a gospel and protest song that she learned from Pete Seeger called We Shall Overcome in D.C. at the March on Washington, where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. Joan continued to spread the song far and wide across the country at rallies such as the free speech movements in Berkeley, California, and folk festivals throughout the world. She withheld 60% of her income tax from the IRS to protest military spending in 1964, and in 1965, along with her mentor, Ira Sandpearl, she founded the Institute for the Study of Nonviolence in Carmel Valley, California. That same year, Joan also introduced the world to the music of Phil Oakes by covering his classic, There But For Fortune, and received a Grammy nomination while helping launch Phil's career. Joan was willing to be locked up for the causes that she believed in, and between 1966 and 67, she spent nearly a month behind bars. First, she protested in the fields, alongside Cesar Chavez and migrant farm workers who were striking for both fair wages and opposition of capital punishment at San Quentin Prison. Then, along with her mother and nearly 70 other women, she was arrested for blocking a doorway at the Armed Forces Induction Center in Oakland, California, as an objection to the Vietnam War. While she was in prison, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. came to visit her, then gave an impromptu speech to a group of protesters outside the prison. She also met her husband, activist and writer David Harris there, who was incarcerated on the men's side. The two managed to interact so much that just three months after their release, they got engaged, then married two months after that. David openly opposed the war and was convicted of draft evasion and taken from their home to serve two years in federal prison just four months after their ceremony, while Joan was pregnant with their child. A month after he was imprisoned, she performed at Woodstock with raving reviews. When David was finally released, they separated soon after, and she later wrote in her memoir, I am made to live alone. Virgil Kane is my name, and I drove on the Danville train. When the folk music revival began to fade for many by the early 70s, Jones stayed relevant by staying politically engaged and continuing to record what she wanted. She had another gold record called Blessed Are in 1971 that marked her last with Vanguard Records. Over the next four years, she would record six albums under A&M Records, including a track called Where Are You Now, My Son, a 23-minute song, half-spoken word, half-sound recordings from her trip to Hanoi, North Vietnam in 1972, where Joan and company survived the 11-day-long Christmas bombings. Joan's younger sister Mimi had her own incredibly successful career as a duo with her husband Richard Farina, a combination of Appalachian dulcimer, guitar, and moving harmonies. Mimi's voice was different from Joan's, more soft and sensual, and she was an extremely creative guitarist. Though Joan and Mimi didn't perform together in their professional careers but a handful of times, in 1973, she joined in at a concert for inmates at Sing Sing Prison in New York City, along with B.B. King. Mimi was then inspired to start Bread and Roses, a nonprofit aimed at bringing music and arts to penitentiary and health institutions. Her music career was upended, however, when her husband Richard had a fatal motorcycle accident when she was just 21 years old. 
She dedicated the rest of her life to charity work instead of music. Well, I'll be damned. Here comes your ghost again. But that's not a... In the mid-1970s, Joan added a pop album to her catalog called Diamonds and Rust, which went gold and became the highest-selling album of her career. She never stopped speaking out and played several benefit concerts for the growing LGBTQ community, including one in 1978 to defeat the Briggs Initiative, which was a bill proposed to restrict all gay people from teaching in California schools. She recorded a song called Alter Boy and a Thief, which was dedicated to that LGBTQ audience. In 1985, she was a performer for the Live Aid concert for Famine Relief in Africa, and also became the head of the Humanitas International Human Rights Committee, which concentrated on using any nonviolent means necessary to distract those in high office, whom the committee believed were exercising unauthorized power. I wish I had you in in 1987, Joan's autobiography, entitled Anna Voice to Sing With, became a New York Times bestseller. In it, she revealed a relationship she had with a 27-year-old Steve Jobs, founder of Apple, whom she dated for a few years. She recalled, We were an interesting item. We disagreed on almost everything, but he was sweet to me. The 80s also brought challenges, and despite nearly 40 albums behind her, several of them gold, it was the first time that Joan found herself without a record deal. She was dating Mickey Hart, percussionist for the Grateful Dead, and tried to make a record with the band. It didn't work, however, mainly because Jerry Garcia was constantly taking bathroom breaks, immersed in a deep heroin habit at the time. Joan later wrote, Look, if I were really interested, I guess I could have gone into some pork-faced executive with fat fingers back there a little while ago and said, Hey, I'm ready. Put me on Miami Vice. Give me just one song. Do whatever you have to do to get me back in the public eye. You see, first it was disbelief. Disbelief and then denial. And then you start to blame everybody. They don't have any taste. They're stupid. They have something against me. Finally, it begins to dawn on you that times have changed in 25 years. There were two kinds of songs where I lived and in my repertoire. There were the good ones and then there were the evil ones. And of course, you know that I like the evil ones better. The trouble was I didn't understand why they were... I believe in prophecy Some folks see things not everybody can see In October 1993, Joan became the first musician to perform at Alcatraz Prison in San Francisco as a benefit for her sister Mimi's nonprofit organization, Bread and Roses. In the 2000s, her releases began to space out, and both Vanguard and A&M Records published remastered recordings of all of Joan's albums under their contracts. For the first time in her career, Joan openly endorsed the president in 2008 for Barack Obama, and in 2009, she performed at the 50th Newport Folk Festival, also the 50th anniversary of her first performance there. A few years later, Joan came close to ending her career for good after problems with her voice began to surface. Over decades of performing, her vocals suffered and began to change to the point where she didn't recognize it and she legitimately thought that she would never sing again. In her mid-60s at this point, she said, I was going to quit singing because it didn't sound like anything I wanted to listen to. After working with a vocal therapist, however, she adapted and found happiness with the change. In the beginning, it was one long high note, she said. Now it's a deep, but a good voice. In a way, it's much more interesting now. It represents a full life. Well, you've got 
Although she wrote her own material, Joan is best known for her unique interpretations of traditional songs and works from the great songwriters of the century. Over dozens of albums and over 50 years of work, Joan still performs roughly 60 concerts a year outside of a pandemic. And one could argue that without her, we would not have the exact stylings of Joni Mitchell, Judy Collins, or Emmylou Harris, and many more women who all cite her as their early inspiration. She's also been a huge influence on modern artists like Rehannon Giddens, Sturgill Simpson, and Marcus Mumford, to name a few. Joan has had eight records go gold. She's been inducted into the Rock and Roll and the Grammy Hall of Fame, received the Kennedy Center Honors, and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences elected her to fellowship in 2020. She's been nominated for nine Grammys, and in 2007, she was given the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award, about which she commented, that's the sign that they're getting rid of you. Here's a rendition inspired by Joan Baez's version of Silver Dagger, an old English ballad that is thought to have originated in the late 1700s or the Victorian era and closely resembles a handful of other traditional songs as the lyrics traveled from the British Isles throughout America. Don't sing love songs You wake my mother Sleeping here Right by my side One in her right hand A silver dagger She says that I Can't be your bride All men are false Says my mother I tell you again Loving lights on the very next evening, and they'll call another and leave you alone to pine inside. Daddy's a handsome devil, he's got a chain that's five miles long. Every link A heart does dangle Of another maid He's loved and wound Go court another Tender maiden I Hope that she She'll be your bride Cause I've been warned I've decided to sleep alone all of my life. Well, good morning, Captain. Good morning to you, Sean. Well, do you need a new mule scanner? Down in Danville, Virginia, David Anthony Rice, better known as Tony Rice, came into the world on June 8, 1951. Born one of four boys, his mother was a mill worker and a homemaker, and decided to call him Tony because her favorite actor was Tony Curtis. His father, Herb, was a welder and an amateur musician, 
playing guitar and mandolin with some local groups. When Tony was an infant in the mid-1950s, Herb moved the family to the Los Angeles area and helped form a bluegrass band called the Golden State Boys, later known as the Hillmen, with a few of his brothers-in-law, who played guitar, banjo, and bass, and even a very young Del McCurry at one point. They recorded several singles, and Tony's earliest memories were watching that band, especially his uncle, Hal Poindexter, playing guitar. Through Herb's insistence, everyone in the Rice household played an instrument or sang, and typically it was bluegrass music. Originally, Tony started out on mandolin, but soon switched to guitar, finding it more his speed. He was just nine years old when he performed for the first time, singing a Buck Owens tune called Under Your Spell Again on the local town hall radio show. There, Tony met a bluegrass group called the Kentucky Colonels, who became a model for he and his brothers to learn the fundamentals of both bluegrass and country music from. The Colonels' lead guitarist, Clarence White, who later became a member of the Birds in the 1960s, was a huge influence on Tony. Following the lead from his father's band and the Colonels, and heroes such as bluegrass pioneers Bill Monroe and Lester Flatt, Tony and his brothers formed an outfit called the Haphazards and played a number of shows in California with the Colonels, even the famous Troubadour nightclub in Disneyland. But if somehow you could pack up your sorrows and give it all to me. In 1965, when Tony was 14, the family moved to Florida, then on to several cities in the southeast, as his father, Herb, was following different welding jobs. By the time Tony was 17, however, his father's drinking problem was causing too much turmoil at home, so Tony dropped out of high school and moved out. He started performing in a few different regional bands, jumping between the homes of relatives, then eventually finding roots in Louisville in 1970. There, Tony became the lead vocalist for the Bluegrass Alliance, which also featured Sam Bush on mandolin, and had more versatility musically than just straight bluegrass. A prominent musician in the Louisville scene named Larry Bickle remembered when Tony moved into town, stating, Rice was a step above most of the people who played with the band at the time. On the banks of the river Where the willows hang down About a year later, Kentucky banjo legend J.D. Crow hired Larry Rice, Tony's older brother, to play mandolin, and it didn't take long for Tony to join the group and showcase his picking and lead vocals. They became known as the New South, and three years later, a young rising star named Ricky Skaggs replaced Larry Rice on mandolin and added tenor vocals, as did the dobro virtuoso Jerry Douglas. They were the region's finest progressive bluegrass outfit, though initially they were experimenting with electric instruments that didn't fit with Tony and Ricky, and they convinced the others to take a more traditional approach. The result was a 1975 album, J.D. Crow and the New South, Rounder Records' top seller up to that time, and widely considered the greatest album ever recorded in bluegrass music. Following the success of that record, Tony crossed paths with mandolinist David Grisman in California. He recalled, Grisman came home with me to Kentucky, and he sat in and played a couple of nights with the New South which was the last configuration of the New South that I was in. And it was sometime in the summer of that year that we started talking seriously about collaboration on something. What David brought to Tony's attention was a fusion that was a slight detour from down the middle bluegrass. The music laid out in front of me was like nothing I'd ever seen, Tony said. At first, I thought I couldn't learn it. The only thing that saved me was that I always loved the sound of acoustic, small group modern jazz. He moved to California to join the David Grisman Quintet, learning about music theory, reading charts, and taking lessons from the renowned guitarist John Carlini, 
who taught him the intricacies of jazz musical improvisation. Soon, the influence of David Grisman led a path for Tony to go out on his own, starting the Tony Rice Unit in 1979. The group concept initially was aimed at instrumentals, though several albums, such as Manzanita, blended jazz, folk, and bluegrass, and featured his old friends in Ricky Skaggs and Sam Bush. Tony said, I'm a bluegrass musician forever in my heart, but I want to explore and unearth some other things along the way. When I think that piano, drums, and soprano saxophone are appropriate, I add them. I really wanted to get out of restricting myself to one format. With his group, he put out records of experimental space grass, and even covered some of his favorite songwriters, like Ian Tyson, Joni Mitchell, Phil Oakes, Tom Paxton, Bob Dylan, and Gordon Lightfoot. Now the legend lives on from the Chippewong down of the big lake they call Gitchigumi. By 1980, after a failed relationship in California, Tony headed back east, and he didn't slow down. In fact, he got busier and busier. He teamed up with Ricky Skaggs for an album of bluegrass duets called Skaggs and Rice, collaborated with Bela Fleck, and recorded two albums with pioneer flat picker Norman Blake. In 1981, he assembled a group with J.D. Crow on banjo, the mandolin player and gospel singer Doyle Lawson, fiddler Bobby Hicks, and bassist Todd Phillips to make the Bluegrass album on Rounder Records, and subsequently called themselves the Bluegrass Album Band. J.D. Crow recalled, We got halfway through the first album. We were listening to playback, and me and Tony were standing side by side, and he looked at me and said, Crow, this is too good. He also reformed the Tony Rice unit, and his lead vocals came to the forefront with folk-influenced and highly acclaimed solo records like Church Street Blues and Cold on the Shoulder, which featured Bela Fleck, Vassar Clemens, and Jerry Douglas. Ain't you hear the ripple of my big spike hammer? Lord, it's my side. By the early 1990s and a fourth album with the Bluegrass Album Band, J.D. Crow noticed that Tony's voice was slipping, stating that, he was straining to do things that he didn't use to strain to do. Decades of tobacco and a habit with alcohol, which, like his father, Tony also struggled with. And you tack on the innumerable amount of concerts that he sang, his voice was shot. Doctors diagnosed him with dysphonia, a condition that causes involuntary spasms in the muscles of the throat. Still, he remained active and joined David Grisman and Jerry Garcia in 1993 to record the pizza tapes and a duet in 1994 with Grisman called Tone Poems, using different antique mandolins and guitars on each piece of original material. Tony pushed his voice until it didn't function anymore, and the last performance he would sing at was the 1994 Gettysburg Bluegrass Festival, performing a reunion concert with the New South, coming off the stage, shaking his head to the others, saying, I ain't singing anymore. Despite Tony's health issues, he couldn't stop playing guitar, and stayed exceedingly busy. During the 90s, the final bluegrass album band record, with a nod to Tony, finalized their career with an instrumental record, and he recorded four albums with his brothers and friends. In the 2000s, he started performing with Peter Rowan, and even though his musical performances were thinning out, Tony received the 2007 International Bluegrass Music Association Award for Guitar Player of the Year. A wonderful biography called Still Inside, The Tony Rice Story, officially released in 2010 at Merle Fest, just two years before the founder, Doc Watson, passed. The book offers a thoughtful and in-depth account of Tony's life behind bluegrass, the guitar legacy, and acclaim. Occasionally, the bluegrass album band was still reuniting for gigs, though their last would be in Asheville, North Carolina in 2013. 
The following year, Tony was diagnosed with lateral epicondylitis, also known as tennis elbow, and guitar playing was painful, to the point where his last live performance was at his induction into the International Bluegrass Music Hall of Fame in 2013. I want to give a sincere thank you everybody within earshot, but thank you is not good enough. On Christmas morning in 2020, Tony Rice passed away at his home in Reedsville, North Carolina, while making his coffee, according to his longtime friend Ricky Skaggs. When Tony's first guitar teacher, Clarence White, was struck by a car and killed in 1973, Tony bought the Martin D28 guitar that Clarence left behind and played it for the rest of his life, and was even known to keep rattlesnakes in it, which is an old tradition of sorts. With that instrument, Tony bridged the gap between traditional bluegrass, folk songs, jazz, classical music, and singer-songwriter pop, and he was one of the catalysts that sparked the new grass movement. He's not only widely acknowledged as one of the greatest acoustic guitar players of all time, but his voice and phrasing both set and broke parameters for bluegrass and folk musicians alike. Well, I've been hanging out uptown, Lord, and that low down range, watching good time, Charlie friends, is driving me insane. After his death, musicians and people close had nothing but heartfelt words for him. Blues guitarist Joe Bonamassa said, Tony Rice made something incredibly difficult look incredibly easy. The banjo virtuoso Bela Fleck posted that every once in a while, there are seminal figures. They don't come along even every five years. He might, by a fluke, get two of them in 20 years. Tony's one of those guys. Mandolin master Chris Thiele added, No one has had a more profound impact on my musical world. His playing, singing, writing, and arranging broke the bluegrass mold and will eternally attest to the fact that music can take you anywhere, from anywhere. The International Bluegrass Association named him Instrumental Performer of the Year six times, and Tony was nominated for two Grammys with one win in 1983 for Best Country Instrumental Performance with J.D. Crow and the New South. Here's New River Train, an old-time Blue Ridge Mountain song from the 1800s that is thought to have been associated with one of the railroad lines that ran along the New River in southwestern Virginia. My version is directly inspired by Tony Rice and Norman Blake's rendition, first recorded by Henry Whittier in 1924. Riding on the new train, the same old train that brought me here is gonna bring me back again. Darling, you can't love one. Darling, you can't love one. You can't love one. Have any footing on, darling?
Riding on that new train Riding on that new train Same old train that brought me here Is gonna bring me back again Darling, you can't love too Darling, you can't love too You can't love too And little heart be true oh, Darling, you can't love too Darling, you can't love one Darling, you can't love one You can't love one Have any foot no Darling, you can't love one Riding on that new river train Riding on that new river train The same old train that brought me here Will bring me back again was a cold and cruel evening Sneaking up on Speedy Creek I found myself asleeping in the snow In a small agricultural flatland community called Swift Current in Saskatchewan near the Montana-Canada border, Coulter Wall was born on June 27, 1995. It's ranch, farmer, and cow country. And there's a running joke in town that it's so flat you can watch your dog run away all week. Coulter's father was one of Canada's longest-serving premiers a political position that led the province of Saskatchewan for 11 years. He was born between two sisters, and like most kids, was into football and sports growing up. The Wall household loved country music, and there was often Johnny Cash, Waylon Jennings, and Willie Nelson playing at home, in the truck, or in the car. Oh, bury me not on the lone prairie. Coulter's mother wanted each of her children to learn an instrument. But after trying piano lessons, he found that he didn't have the patience as a young man, wanting to run around. By the time he was 12 or 13, however, he got a guitar in his hand and decided that he wanted to pursue music as a career. It took a few years of navigating through the ACDC, Black Sabbath, and Led Zeppelin that he was into at the time, initially feeling drawn towards being a solo lead guitarist, and played in a few local rock bands. When he realized that he wasn't cut out for it, he moved on to finger picking and discovered Bob Dylan's Don't Think Twice, It's All Right around age 15 or 16, then decided to start writing and singing his own songs. After Dylan, he started diving deep. He recalled, I fell down this rabbit hole of needing to know where these songs came from, and it kept leading into other genres, and it kind of became this full circle thing, because eventually, I was listening to what I grew up with in the house. You never work, boy, and you never will. Right, right, right. Part of that evolution for Coulter was finding Ramblin' Jack Elliott, who recorded a wide variety of music, including traditional folk ballads, Blind Lemon Jefferson tunes, Woody Guthrie tunes, bluegrass songs, and the first cowboy tunes that Coulter really enjoyed and started learning to play. He worked as a DJ for the local radio station during high school, coming across more songs and styles as he dove further into music history. Robert Johnson led to Mississippi John Hurt and then to Lead Belly. Towns Van Zant led to Lightning Hopkins and Graham Parsons. Jimmy Rogers led him to Marty Robbins, Tex Ritter, and local Canadian cowboy and Western legends, such as Ian Tyson, 
who wrote the well-known songs Four Strong Winds and Summer Wages. If you delve in the world of folk music long enough, you're headed straight to country and western, Coulter said. When your friends are out, steal her, she'll be gambled and gone like summer wages. Coulter's first public performance was at a historic venue called the Lyric Theater in his hometown. He said he was so nervous that he performed the entire show with his back to the audience. It took him three or four years of writing before he came up with a song worth recording called Ballad of a Law-Abiding Sophisticate. After that, he started getting comfortable writing, and upon graduating high school in 2013, he made his first demos after enrolling at the University of Saskatchewan. Two years later, he took a break from school to focus on music and became friends with the members of a local folk and bluegrass outfit called the Dead South, who were getting a lot of traction after winning the Road Gold Award for their touring success by the Canadian Independent Music Association. The group invited him on tour as their opening act, and things started picking up speed. Through those shows with the Dead South, Coulter got in touch with Young Mary's record company, who decided to record his debut EP, Imaginary Appalachia. Though the record didn't have a big press or distribution campaign, the content made an impact, showcasing just how much the Appalachian region's music, as well as the blues of Robert Johnson and Mississippi John Hurt, got through to him up north. It helped that he got a leg up from a few well-known people raving about him, namely Canadian professional wrestler Brock Lesnar, who praised the EP on Stone Cold Steve Austin's podcast, and W.B. Wheeler, who hosts West Virginia's Old Soul radio show. A few live videos that Coulter did of songs from the record with Original 16 Brewing Company also went viral, which today have nearly 49 million views between the three of them. Soon, he made fans out of Shooter Jennings and Lucinda Williams, who, a year after his EP released, invited him to open for her at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville, former home, former home of the Grand Ole Opry. Well, I figure I'll buy me a motorcycle, wrap a pretty little frame around a telephone pole, ride her off a mountain like O.R.L.O. He loves his hometown, but found it incredibly difficult to make a music career there. And right after releasing Imaginary Appalachia, Coulter decided to stop imagining and move there, ending up in the Bowling Green area of Kentucky. The Ryman Show gave Coulter more offers to open for country artists like Margot Price and Whitey Morgan, sneaking down to Nashville for shows here and there. The EP got the attention of famed producer and record executive Rick Rubin, who's worked with Johnny Cash and Tom Petty, among countless others, and signed him to a publishing deal. Imaginary Appalachia also found its way to Nashville producer Dave Cobb, who's done albums with Jason Isbell, Chris Stapleton, Brandy Carlisle, and Sturgill Simpson. Dave arranged a meeting, and soon Coulter was recording his first full-length record in RCA's famed Studio A in Nashville. The record received wide acclaim, drawing comparisons to the narrative of an early Chris Christopherson, Guy Clark, or Towns Van Zant, The full length also featured a duet of an old 1957 country tune called Fraulein with another up-and-coming artist at the time, Tyler Childers. Fraulein, Fraulein, look up towards the heavens each night. The following year, Coulter aimed to honor the culture of his hometown in Canada with Songs of the Plains, also produced by Dave Cobb and recorded at Studio A, this time using the same equipment that Marty Robbins once used. The theme of the record was an intentional step away from the sound of his EP. As he said, I wanted to cut a record that was about the plains, about the flatlands, to tell the story of the land that I come from. People always ask, you're from Canada, how come you're playing country songs? 
I think a lot of people don't realize that I come from a pretty rural area and a place where people are real westernized. They love country music because that's the kind of lives that they lead. Coulter didn't just romanticize the idea in a handful of songs either. He bought nearly a dozen cattle who were out to pasture at a family farm back in Saskatchewan and registered his own cattle brand, CW Rafter, something that he's always wanted. In the summer of 2020, Coulter's third full-length, Western Swing and Waltzes and Other Punchy Songs, was released on the independent record label La Honda Records. Recorded in the hill country of South Texas at Yellow Dog Studios, it was the first self-produced work that he's done. Producing my own record has been a goal of mine since I started putting out music, he said. It's a pretty easy gig, to be honest, given you know what it is you're after. I've also had the benefit of working alongside some pretty great producers on previous projects. So just like anything, you learn some tips and tricks and apply them yourself. South Texas is a perfect place to hunker down with a bunch of friends, play songs, and drink beer. That's how we approached this album. The record has charted all over the world, including the top 10 U.S. Billboard folk and country charts, the number one U.K. country record, and top 100 in Australia and Canada. He pays homage to Stan Jones, who wrote Ghost Riders in the Sky, recounting a herd song of his called Cowpoke with the distinctive yodel cattle call. Coulter also does a rendition of a 1961 gunfighter ballad by Marty Robbins called Big Iron, and he said, I'm a big Marty Robbins fan, have been for a while. Most people know him for his gunfighter ballads and trail song records, but his catalog was huge and diverse. As far as Western music and cowboy songs go, it'd be a disservice not to know these guys and their records. Forever I wonder, forever I stray. Through COVID times, aside from recording his latest work in South Texas, Coulter has been helping out as a ranch hand with a few friends around the States. He said, when the schedule permits, I like to stay with these buds of mine and try to learn a little. It's an influence on my writing, but moreover, it's for my own sake and peace of mind. Ranching is a passion of mine. And just like music, there's always something to learn. The day you stop learning, you might as well be dead. Though he's been spending a lot of time living in the U.S. over the last six years, he's extremely proud to have the upbringing and the heritage that he does, stating, Canada has had a number of great musicians and songwriters, and naturally I'm proud of that. It's important to me to sing and record Canadian songs and shed a little light on some lesser-known Canadian artists. Come home late, come home early. Coulter's taste may seem to fall heavily in favor of cowboy and western songs these days, but his affinity for some of the century's best-known songwriters has stuck around in his set lists, performing covers of John Prine's Speed of the Sound of Loneliness at live shows and covering Towns Van Zant's Snake Mountain Blues as he did on his first full-length record. To the latter point, Coulter's right arm has a tattoo of a wild rose and a Colt 45 with poncho written on the barrel. It was his first tattoo, and there was supposed to be a lefty as well, but he didn't realize how expensive it would be and couldn't afford to finish it. He recalled, I cleared my whole bank account, which is why the left arm is still bare. Sweetly taking his time Drinking all the straight right Towns' protege, Steve Earle, said that Coulter was bar none the best singer-songwriter that I've seen in 20 years. Rick Rubin said, Coulter sings and writes songs in ways seemingly lost in time. Pitchfork has called him one of country's most exciting young voices. Vice Magazine said, Wall infuses old traditional folk songs and tunes that he wrote with equal weight. 
the result of a guitarist and songwriter strikingly mature for his age, or any age really. His writing has been compared to legends like Bruce Springsteen and Guy Clark, but he's not convinced, stating, People always like to make comparisons with artists. That's the natural thing you do as a listener. Usually because I sing in a baritone register, a lot of people are very quick to cite Johnny Cash, which I don't always agree with. And I love Cash, but I don't feel like there's really all that much similarity there. It's an honor, but I don't know. I figure everybody hears it different, and they're always going to decide what it is for themselves. Mr. Torano Man, go away from my door. What is notable is that Coulter isn't following a formula, like most are in country music, to sell records. In fact, he's doing the complete opposite, creating authentic songs and giving due diligence to those who laid the ground before him, which is why he has a cult following. Coulter has a deep affinity for the music that he plays because it represents where he comes from and who he is. He's labeled himself a folk singer, following the lines of Woody Guthrie, making a career out of keeping the oldest forms of ballads and western cowboy songs alive, and creating his own from the same cloak. Here's a take on Diamond Joe, an old traditional cowboy tune about a man named Diamond Joe, who was a Texas cattleman, as the story goes, and was so rich that he wore diamonds as his vest buttons and carried his payload in a diamond-studded jar. This rendition is inspired by Ramblin' Jack Elliott's version, which is where Coulter learned the song and recorded it on his newest album in 2020. Now there's a man you'll hear about Most everywhere you go And his holdings are in Texas And his name is Diamond Joe And he carries all his money In a diamond-studded jar And he never took much trouble with the process of the law, I hired out the Diamond Joe boys. Did offer him my hand. Only gave me a string of horses, so they could not stand. When I nearly starved to death, boys, you didn't mistreat me so. Save no dollar in the paid diamond joe. Now his bread it was corn dodger and his meat he couldn't chop. Oh, it nearly drove me crazy. With the wagon of his jar On the telling of this story I mean to let you know That there never was no rounder That could lie like Diamond Joe Now I tried three times to quit him But he did argue so and I'm stealing punching cattle in the paid diamond joke. Yeah, but when I'm caught up yonder, and it's my time to go, give my blankets to my buddies, give those fleas to diamond joke. 
song People say a man is made out of mud A poor man's made out of muscle and blood Muscle and blood and skin and bones A mind that's weak and a back that's strong You load 16 That's all for episode 9 I started a Spotify playlist for season 1 That includes some of my favorite songs from each artist Search for American Songcatcher Season 1 and follow Also make sure to follow American Songcatcher on Instagram At American Songcatcher And if you're on Apple Podcasts It would be really helpful if you gave a rating and a review Today's Shine a Light goes out to the folks at Basic Folk Podcast, with honest conversations between musicians and Cindy Howes, a well-versed public radio host and music curator. Cindy approaches interviews with warmth, humor, and insightful questions. Basic Folk features complex conversations about the human experience. Listen to interviews with Chris Smither, Anais Mitchell, Amanda Shires, Jake Blount, Layla McCullough, and many, many more. Also, you can follow at Cindy Howes on social media, and click the link in the description to listen to the show. Huge thanks to the community on Patreon. This would not be possible without you. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash American Songcatcher and start helping us out for as little as $3 a month. To the Smithsonian Folkways for all their crucial work in preserving the legacy of these artists and these songs, cultural equity, and the work of the Lomax family for all of the historical documentation that you've shared with the world, the Library of Congress's complete National Recording Registry and Archive of Folk Song, Our intro song is Payday by Mississippi John Hurt from the Today album. The outro song is 16 Tons, performed by Tennessee Ernie Ford, originally written by Merle Travis. This episode was produced, researched, edited, recorded, and distributed by myself, Nicholas Edward Williams, with writing assistance from Glenn C. Herbert and Cody Ools. In the words of Lead Belly, my guitar is half my life, and my wife is the other half. Here's to the songs of old. May they live on forever. See you next time on American Songcatcher. Don't you call me cause I can't go